Welcome to another episode of GraphQL Radio. My name is Andreas Heiberg and I'm the engineering manager here at Cellate. And today I'm joined by Miles Barden from Lego. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Miles. Is there anything you would like to share with the listener about yourself before we dig into Lego? Uh, yeah, sure. So yeah, my name is Miles. I'm a senior software engineer at the Lego group, specifically lego.com. My squad works on, we call the Brick Experience squad. So we work on pick a brick. If you've not come across it before, we allow you to write by individual Lego bricks and also build minifigures online. Uh, I'm originally from Denmark. I was born in Denmark. And so Lego is obviously dear to my, my heart. I grew up with all the Lego you can imagine. So uh, it's, it's an awesome product to be working on. Oh, same, same here. <laughs> Nice. I guess, how, how did Lego start using GraphQL? What was the kind of motivation for using GraphQL? So Lego started using GraphQL on lego.com, I think from the very beginning. So it was from before my time at, uh, at the Lego group. The decision was made very early. And I believe that was a really great decision to make when they first started uh, moving over to the new shop at lego.com, which now today has become lego.com. The decision was made, I believe, around five years ago, and it served us really well ever since. That's awesome. What, what would you say is kind of like the main benefits to Lego of using GraphQL? So on lego.com, we have over a dozen teams, at least, all working together, all working together to make the the site work. So there are multiple domains. You've got, well, my domain, which is around bricks and elements. You have carts and payments and marketing and the playful content you find at lego.com. And all that going through a single gateway, a single endpoint makes it just a lot easier for everyone to develop against uh, the website and work together to share those resources. So it's very easy for us to send a brick to a cart and the cart to then pay, make a payment and for that payment to go through to, to an order and then that order get delivered to you. And all, all having that in a single a single point of reference to, for both developers and you know users for actually having a really good experience at lego.com, that's, that's very important to us. Yeah, GraphQL is obviously awesome from a developer experience perspective. It kind of blew my mind when I first saw it way back in the day. It is a truly magical experience. How large is the team? So you, you said uh, there's like eight teams within Lego working on GraphQL, but how large, like how many people are actually working on this Lego API? So in terms of like raw numbers of people, I believe it's around 160 just on lego.com. It's huge. We definitely have over a dozen teams within the lego.com domain. Some of them may not interact directly with the GraphQL server, but they at least use it at least on the front end. So yeah, there's a, there's a, a lot of people using it and uh, there are a lot of challenges with having so many developers attacking essentially the same monolith GraphQL server at once. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I guess you say lego.com. Does that mean the, I presume you have like iPhone apps and Android apps and all this stuff? Technically, yes, there are within our stores, the our colleagues in stores have what's called the Lego in-store application. Mm -hmm. And on the, if you go into a store, they'll have an iPad and you can order a set from the store uh, let's say it's, you know, you want to order the huge Millennium Falcon or one of the large Star Wars sets. It's very difficult to get that home, especially if you've come on public transport, for instance. So this is an application that uh, uses our GraphQL server on the back end, the same as lego.com, but it is an in-store experience to order those sets to your door. Yeah, random uh, anecdote about the uh, in-store experience at Lego. I had a friend visit uh, Denmark a few weeks back 
And the first thing he said was like, we need to go to a Lego store. I need to have my passport stamped. I don't. <laughs> oh, I've got like a passport as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's interesting uh, how excited and passionate people go get about going to Lego stores. So you have all these people. And I, I know from talking to you in the past that you've invested quite a lot in the developer experience. What are kind of some notable improvements that you've made uh, at Lego to help the developers work with GraphQL? So when I first was, well, when I first joined Lego, I I think one of the first things I was put up task, to task on was, you know, are we using your GraphQL server correctly? And this was a bit of a daunting task for me because my previous experience had been using a very small GraphQL server with maybe three queries that was talking to a couple of APIs and just orchestrating the data between them. And I'd never touched anything so big before in my life. So I took a look and it turned out that there was a very old version of a of the server framework being used. We were using things like uh, GraphQL imports. Um, if you remember that, I think deprecated about four years ago today. A lot of things that were left over from when lego.com was first uh, instantiated. And it's understandable some of the decisions that were made at the time or some of the patterns that were implemented, but it hadn't scaled, I think, as well as they had hoped it to. So one of my tasks was to kind of go through this and make sure that we could actually start scaling things in a more reproducible manner. Uh, one such experience that I helped implement uh, was using the GraphQL inspector uh, from the guild. It's been a really good uh, piece of software to use that we've been implementing on in our CI process. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I guess you said that your GraphQL server was running an old old framework. I guess the kind of immediate bolts and nuts question is, what is your stack? Like, are you using like what kind of programming languages are you using? So we are a full stack Node.js teams. I won't say the exact framework that we're using, uh, but we... Uh, <laughs> it's a secret that shall never leave Lego. Just for security reasons, you have to understand. Uh, okay. Fair enough. You could probably figure out if you if you if you project around a little bit, but yeah. So we're Node.js all the way through, and in terms of the actual infrastructure, we are serverless as well. So we use a mixture of lambdas for backend services on AWS, and also Fargate containers through ECS. So that's one of the testaments to the design of Lego.com is how well we can scale when it comes to things like Black Friday, uh, Christmas periods, or even just the first of the month when all the new Lego sets release. All of the service, the GraphQL server and all of the front-end applications can scale up really well. We very, very rarely see any kind of um, major issues like outages. It's just people complaining about being stuck in a waiting room. But there's a little, there's a little, there's a little game on there now, which is uh, oh, a nice. nice little flip game. You said that eight years ago, uh, this store was made. That would be quite bleeding edge to be using Lambdas eight years ago. Has it been Lambdas from the start? I believe it has been. It wasn't so long as eight years ago. It was about four years ago or five years maybe. I'm just, I'm, I'm remembering all the uh, the commits I can see from like, you know, this is five <laughs> years ago in, in, in your IDE. Yeah, it was from the very beginning. It was decided that Lego.com would be a serverless site. And I think that's proven really well. So we have a lot of, not only do we have third-party vendors, but we also have our own internal APIs. And the majority, if not all of them, are serverless, including some of more, our more asynchronous processes, such as collecting all the data and reading data from other parts of the Lego group, because the Lego group is more than lego.com. We have teams all over the place doing loads of really good engineering work throughout the the concept of uh, throughout the entirety of the Lego ecosystem. Yeah, very interesting. I guess, you know, having worked a little bit in enterprise in the enterprise world, 
I know it can be quite difficult for things to stay, you know, fresh, like for things to stay up to date on the latest technology trends, right? And so I am fairly surprised that you're leveraging all these modern tools. Would you say that's like a general thing that Lego does well? Like talking about kind of the development culture at Lego. How how did that come to be? It seems like a, a rather mature, modern choice for a large organization. Absolutely. And I think, again, that's a testament to the way that we as developers are allowed to work at the Lego group and on lego.com. So we have a lot of grassroots developer, like developers started, uh, we call them working groups. Essentially, whenever a developer or group of developers come together and say, we want to make this better, we want to make that better. I mean, the the perfect example that I can give is the GraphQL Gateway Working Group. It was started when I first joined, and I ended up leading the group after a few months of using it for development. And we essentially had a group of a handful of engineers, four or five engineers, who came together with the goal of, we want to make the GraphQL server a lot better to use for developers and also upgrade it. We were on an older framework who moved it over to a new one, multiple new ones since then. But we came up with the idea of saying, well, a lot of our schemas break when people make changes in the fast-paced world we are in. We're developing features all the time, and with those features come new GraphQL fields and queries and mutations, and we need a way to make sure that we don't break that schema for the users because we were going towards a continuous delivery pipeline. Theoretically, when you make a change in the GraphQL gateway, your change will be in production within about half an hour, 45 minutes. So there's very little time for things to be fixed before it goes into production. And we ended up using, from the guild, the GraphQL inspector to perform automated checks against our schema on RPRs. And that has evolved over time. Initially, it was just making sure that we weren't doing breaking changes. And now it even gives a bit of a better kind of user experience. We take advantage of their, their UI or the GitHub action that creates a generates a little UI interface on graph on uh, GitHub that says, oh, you've you've changed this schema, you've changed this query, and here's why it's breaking, or here's why it's fine. And that's been really, really useful for the developer experience. Additionally, we've also used some of the tools from the guild, such as GraphQL Code Generator, to implement TypeScript in GraphQL and also in our front end and to some extent in some of our other backend backend services. Because when I started, we were using the type checking, the type system flow. And for various reasons, we were stuck on one version. And it meant that we couldn't get more updates to flow. And I said, well, why don't we use TypeScript? And, you know, everyone says, why don't we use TypeScript? Um, <laughs> well, I'm not sure anymore these days. I think that's uh, it's, going out, it's going out of vogue a little bit. But not, not a lego.com. We're still very much invested in it. So, yeah, we said, well, what we can use our schema to generate TypeScript types for both use for use within like within our resolvers in, in the GraphQL gateway and also on the front end. When we make our queries, we can get full types and we even invested some time in making sure that we could have we could support the existing flow code that was in what was in our that was in our resolvers as well because changing thousands and thousands and thousands of files from flow to typescript is no small task and especially if you want to keep things running and yeah so we we did some open source work with with the guild to make sure that those those packages could actually work and it's 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 made it so much easier for us to uh, develop our graphql schemas uh, in a much safer way, I would say everyone's a lot happier because we don't break anything anymore. And when we do, it's it's broken in the PR. It's never broken in production. <laughs> at least not for the reason. At least not for the reasons that GraphQL is. GraphQL isn't the cause of those of those breakages. At least that's cool that you work with the guild. You know, the guild is obviously a very cool group of people building awesome things. How did you kind of help them uh, improve the packages that you're using? 
So we found that when when we applied their software to our very, very large schema, it may have been, I don't want to say it's the first time it's been used against such a big project, but it may have been the first time someone has actually like properly looked into it because we found that there were, it was an example of an issue we found. We found that if you had a schema that had so many nested types and whether we're doing that correctly or not is, is <laughs> It's beside the point a little bit. Uh, but we found that it just didn't work. It wouldn't. It wouldn't read that schema in. So we ended up reaching out to the community early early on to say, "Can anyone help us with this? We want to read in our massive schema to like the make executable schema function." And eventually, we had someone that was willing to help us out with that. Later on, when we found again bugs that were causing like the flow types to be created incorrectly, we and we ourselves actually went into that code and uh, raised a pull request. Got that merged in consumed it ourselves and have been consuming it ever since. So I guess you mentioned uh, you're using the gills uh, tools to tell you when you're making or if you're accidentally making backwards incompatible changes in a PR, right? But that's not the only way that you can uh, make a quote unquote bad change to a GraphQL schema, right? There are changes that are valid, but maybe not how you desire it as the schema owner, you know? Absolutely. Like you, you have certain patterns or kind of cultural things that, oh, we name things in this way. Or as you mentioned around nested uh, types, maybe we don't want this many levels of nested types. We think in a certain way about how we model a schema and we try to enforce that a, a, across a large organization. I guess, how do you do that at LEGO? Because you have so, so many people contributing to the schema. So one of the working groups we have, whilst I mentioned the GraphQL Gateway working group, we also have the GraphQL working group, which is maybe a naming, naming changes in order. But the GraphQL working group is a collection of engineers from around the Lego group, not just lego.com. I am involved from the lego.com side. We also have a number of engineers that are just to name a few from Lego Ideas and I think from some of the internal warehousing software as well. So we have a lot of people that are making GraphQL servers and we want to come together and say, well, how does the Lego group want to make a GraphQL server? What should our standards be? And we worked tirelessly for a few months to develop some documentation, some rules that say, you know, you should name things in a certain way. You should have, you know, pagination and uh, offsetting, things like that in a certain way. And we've started developing our own internal ESLint rules or lint, just general linting rules for GraphQL servers. And they're still in development right now, but we are hoping to start using them on lego.com very soon. And that will mean that we will have all of our schemas within Lego, the Lego group will be against this one standard that we all set and we all contribute to. And, you know, we, we do all the things like inner sourcing to make sure that, you know, if you've got an idea that you want, you know, I don't like the way this schema is created or I have this idea to make it better. We welcome every, every kind of contribution from anyone in the, in the group. Yeah, ESLint is a very powerful tool. It is kind of surprising to me that it works so well for GraphQL schema rules, but it does. I've seen it happen as well. You're obviously in the in the gateway group, right? And federation is a very hot topic in, in GraphQL, especially at large com large companies like Lego. How does it work? You have different subgraphs around the company. You know, how do you do federation? What are kind of the pain points that you're seeing around federating uh, all these subgraphs? So federation, or I like to call it small f federation, as in the more, more of the conceptual side of things, is really interesting to me. I love the idea of us having multiple GraphQL schemas around the place that we then draw together through a large gateway. And I really wish I could say that we do it at lego.com. I believe there are there are teams within the Lego group that do it. We haven't yet caught up with them just yet, but that's mainly a, a challenge around 
the the, the planning and the, the the way the domains work in 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 subgraphs in federations in federation schemas because we have like I mentioned we have over a dozen teams all working together on the same on the same monolith and it's very important to be able to pick those teams apart and say well you are in charge of this thing you're in charge of this thing how can we make those work together and how can we make them you know, where are the lines? Because sometimes those lines blur together. You know, when does a, a cart become an order? When does a payment become a payment processed? D- different different teams are, are, you know, working together and working together very well, but how can we make that even more, even better? And that's our main challenge with, with Federation. We want to use it. It's a really interesting technology, but there's so much to, to plan and to do, uh, especially when you have you're constantly moving forward, you're constantly making changes, and every person that at least wants to work on it is doing feature work at the same time. So we have to make make sure that it's a it's a balance that we're able to get this working properly. So do I have that right that graph, uh, lego.com is using a monolithic GraphQL server then? At the moment, yes, that's correct. We do have it split split as as um, as much as we can. Uh, we're working towards using a more modular GraphQL format, but it will still compile down into the same into a single monolith server. And like I said, it's it's a decision that was made four or five years ago, and we just need time and people's energy to go make this happen. And I'll be honest, sometimes it's it's a bit difficult to get that uh, remit in. But we're having the conversations. We're talking to the people that we need to talk to, and we have the the talent and the 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 engineering prowess to be able to do it ourselves. It's just a case of you know, it's a matter of a matter of when, not if. I, I wonder you mentioned that these decisions were made a long time ago. Did Lego.com did it originally get made at Lego by the Lego engineering team, or was it something that you were getting outside help with to kind of understand uh, the kind of the GraphQL that which at the time I guess was more nascent? I think the history of Lego.com is is is, is vast. I mean, I, I believe they started kind of the in the late nineties when when a lot of people, a lot of companies were creating their online presence. I mean, I, I certainly remember going on Lego.com as a kid and playing through the Bionicle games. Uh, you have to love doing that. So I think it's come a long way since then. I understand that around 2018, the shop at lego.com was changed and maybe it was a an outside an outside company. I, I don't want to say in case I'm wrong, but de- it was definitely like kind of rebooted in 2018 with a small team of engineers internally to Lego. And that team has now grown significantly since then. So when they started, I believe there may have been 10, 20 engineers. And now we're at 160 and we're still growing. We still see people joining every week. It's, uh, it's really exciting. I guess for you personally, what keeps you at Lego? What excites you to go to work every morning? I mean, the fact that when I was five years old, I got my first kind of box of Lego and I never stopped playing with it. I'd say that <laughs> kept me at Lego. <laughs> um, right. the, the, the company itself is really wonderful to work with. We get all sorts of kind of treats. Um, I must say, like we get, there are the competitions. We have a, we have a bake-off in the office sometimes. And we've, I've, I've won a couple of times of my, uh, my banana bread, won some Lego sets. That kind of work culture of like that work-life balance is really special to me mm. in terms of engineering we have a lot of freedom where we need to have freedom so like i mentioned with the working groups it goes even further where a few of us engineers came up with like almost separately came up with the idea of well we should have a day a month where we kind of just go away and do our own learning our own learning day and i i was introduced to a few engineers uh, in both copenhagen and billund and we worked together to come up with what we can we now call the fabulab friday uh, framework and if, if you remember the Fabuland t- uh, theme from many years ago, we, we kind of used that with lab, like laboratory. 
And it's a whole day, one one day a month, where all these teams kind of down tools for the day and just kind of work on anything they want to work on. If you've been on lego.com during the, the busy periods and the waiting room is up, there's a little game you can play on it, like a little flip game. That was one of the outcomes of our Fabulab Friday. Uh, what a few a few of engineers decided, waiting is boring. Can we make a fun game that people can play while they're waiting? And it went on Twitter. It, it got people got people talking. I would consider that a really good success. That we've we've created some developer tools internally as well that have really helped us speed up our workflow in testing and getting just development done. And just being having that freedom to work on things without kind of someone breathing down your neck and saying, oh well, what value is this going to make? How much money is this going to make you? That's really great. And that's what that's what keeps me coming to coming back to work each day. Yeah, I really love this idea of having a game and a waiting screen, you know, take something that's inherently very boring and frustrating and try to delight people. That's really cool. And yeah, like having autonomy at work is obviously super fulfilling, right? As you said, you don't want to feel like you're super constrained and someone's breathing down your neck telling you what to do. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I guess one thing we didn't talk about earlier. So you have all these front ends and iPhone apps and so on using the, the GraphQL API. Does that mean it's a public API? Like, how do you think about securing that API? So technically, yes, it is public in the fact that, you know, like your front door is public. Someone can knock on your front door and, you know, ask to come in, you can say yes or no to them. We don't treat it necessarily as a public API with documentation or SLAs or any kind of really su- like support if you want to use it yourself. But we do know people use it for their own applications. I've personally seen a lot of like, you know, Chrome extensions or Discord bots or things like that that are actually using our API to ascertain data for for fans to use and to actually help them purchase more things than Lego.com. So in some aspects, we don't mind people using it for that, especially if it's going to kind of make us money. <laughs> but at the same time, it isn't necessarily a public API, but it doesn't stop us securing it any better. We could, because we know people are going to be, you know, hammering this and trying to find out all the secret information that's inside there. Hint, there's none. <laughs> we still have to make sure that people aren't using using it too much. We do have rate limits. There are tokens that we will generate for various, like, you know, pub, private things. So your cart, your orders, and your payment details, completely private. Even if someone is, you know, poking at the API, we're not going to let that information go. But yeah, we do know people use the API for public for public things, and it helps us develop not only like, you know, the regular security things like authentication, authorization, but also, well, is someone going to try and add this thing to their cart that we don't want them to? We put better checks in place, we put more backend checks in place. We make those resolvers and those, you know, that those queries and mutations a lot more robust. And I think that makes us better engineers for it. Just knowing people are going to try and break it. Yeah, I guess you're playing with an offense on the other side. You're not just kind of like assuming everything is uh, fine and dainty. That kind of makes sense. I guess a lot of people are concerned with public GraphQL APIs that GraphQL allows you to make really complicated queries that, you know, would make a DDoS attack easier, right? Because you can kind of have almost like infinite loops uh, and so on in in your queries if you're trying hard enough. I guess you're not seeing that as an issue in practice. It sounds like. Yeah, it would, it would be a lie to say that we don't receive DDoS attacks. I, I think we might even receive them every day. But it's, again, a testament to our DevOps teams, the people that are developing or yeah, configuring firewalls and CDNs and those sort of things that sit in front of our GraphQL API and the rest of Lego.com, that we prevent like ma- the majority of it. And if one gets through, if we're, people are on it, fixing it very, 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 very quickly. In my time... Over two years at lego.com, I think I've only seen, I've ever seen one that actually made it through. 
Wow. So it's uh, it's things are good. I don't want to don't want to put that out as like a challenge. Like, please don't, <laughs> please don't do it on us. Right. But we have the engineers that work here are incredibly talented, and I de- I definitely trust them to to keep things working. Yeah, Miles. As you know, I work at Stellate, right, and we care very deeply about GraphQL caching. I would be remiss if not asking, how do you think about caching at Lego? Caching is a hot topic. It's come up a number of times for us when it comes to serving the data we have at Logo.com because, you know, as any web developer might have seen, it's an e-commerce site. It's not really much different from any others, apart from the fact that I think we have a lot more playful experiences. There's a whole team dedicated to the playful experiences in Logo.com. But at the end of the day, we sell products. Some of those products are different kind of products. We have, you know, sets and elements and bricks and things like that, but they're all products. So we just, we sell them. And with that comes a lot of static data, comes a lot of dynamic data. And there was a, a big push a year or two ago to start caching a lot of that data or cache it better than we were before. And this is one of the things that the GraphQL Gateway Working Group ended up uh, tackling as well. It's come to the conclusion now that we've implemented multiple caching layers over our GraphQL server. So very, very sorry, we don't, we don't, we don't use Delate. <laughs> At <laughs> least not just nice. yet, but we use the built-in caching ability of our server framework along with like our own caching layer that we've built ourselves. We've had some very talented over engineers over the years come in and say, oh, why not? I can make this better. I can make this a lot easier for the developers to use. And it, it marries very nicely with our developer experience. It's come to a point now where we have our own custom directive that we've created for our schema, where we want people to start caching things more, but the developers don't necessarily know which data they should cache and for how long they should cache it. So the directive that we've come up with actually hashes the results of a field, of a query, you know, anything within our server, put it against, and we'll then start logging it to our logging platform. So you can then make a query and say, well, how many times, you know, in the last month did the data on the footer change, for instance, on the website? The footer is very static, but it does change sometimes. We can uh, put this directive on and we can start seeing, well, this data changes once every, once every 20 days, let's say, we can cache it for that long now. We, we have that data, we can, we can use that data to drive our development. That is a, quite a cool developer experience. I guess just adding a directive and you get better observability. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We do something similar. You know, we give people metrics and one of those metrics is like, how often does this field change, right? Like, what is the cardinality of, of this data set? So, yeah, that's, that definitely makes sense. I guess this kind of leans into what is your metrics slash observability story for GraphQL? How do developers actually know how the GraphQL server is used? So we have a number of, well, we actually use not only the, the, the max time directive that we've created, we've also overridden the, the deprecated directive as well. And this goes into our process of like actually changing fields around within the context of the GraphQL inspector as well, because whilst it is a, it's a breaking change to remove a field, it's not a breaking change to remove a deprecated field. We have a separate kind of, I guess it's kind of a spy inside the directive, the deprecated directive that says, when has this field actually been called? It only works on fields, I think, at the moment. We look, we're looking to make it work on inputs as well. But we should be able to run a query and a developer, we have a, just a dashboard that says, here are the times that your deprecated fields were being called. 
And you can say you can see when that field goes to zero, that means all of the front end clients have stopped using it. And if any of our, you know, any people outside are also using that field, it's it's usually a very small baseline. And then we can say, okay, it's safe now to remove that field. So we have that full feedback between whether a field is being used and whether it's safe to remove it. The next step is to automate that as well. To say prior to you removing a field, and if we can detect that that field has never been used, we'll mark it as safe immediately and we'll allow that thing to go through. Yeah, I mean, developer experience, you can keep polishing it infinitely, right? And uh, of course, it makes complete sense to automate that and make a super slick bot on GitHub. But this is a great start. You know, this is exactly the information you want to know, right? And so that sounds pretty smart. Is that the only two directives that you guys have been <laughs> overriding or playing with? Like, what kind of directives are you guys using? We have others. They're more for, like, internal stats collection. Like, what is the cost of running this query? How much processing power is this going to use? I believe other people have been working on those in the past, so it's not been my focus necessarily. But I've definitely been really, like, heavily involved in the, the, developer, pro the developer experience. And the reason it's so important is... The size of the team is huge, and you can't reasonably expect everyone to, frankly, even be interested in, in what's going on in GraphQL. As much as I love it, as much as I really enjoy working with it, um, other people have other other priorities. We have a lot of serverless experts at Lego.com. They've been giving talks all over the place, and they may not have the same knowledge that I do. So making that experience better for them, putting those messages out there to say, well, this is what's changed. This is what you need to fix. This is almost even how you fix it. That makes it just so much easier for everyone to work together and communicate better together. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's interesting to me. You're, you have a directive for figuring out the cost. I guess that's partly easy for you because you're using Lambda. So there's like an invocation cost that's kind of somewhat easy to compute. Yeah, or just time as well. We, we know the size of our containers that the, the server runs in. We know the memory and things like that. So you can figure out kind of from how long it took for a query to run. You know, it, we get things like 99 percentiles and 50 percentiles and we have alerts as well. You know, if, if a certain query starts taking a long, long time, we will be alerted. And there is a whole long, you know, a, a, t a rotating team of on-call engineers that will be woken up at three in the morning to, to fix that, to fix that issue. Makes sense. We've reached the scary end of this conversation on call. <laughs> I'm going to run, run away now. I'm, I've really enjoyed the conversation, Miles. Unless there's anything that you would like to talk about just before we end, then uh, then I would like to thank you for your time. It's been really amazing to hear more about how Lego does GraphQL. It's fascinating. And uh, I'm frankly very impressed by the maturity of the organization. I wouldn't necessarily have assumed uh, that you're kind of working on, on such modern things. That's really awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you, Miles. It's a very good conversation. Mm -hmm.